At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. This winter, we're taking a fresh look at a familiar story through our series, Jonah, at odds with God. Tune in now as we face the same choice Jonah did, perceive God's mission or to resent it. Well, have you ever run across a walking contradiction? Let me, let me help you figure out what that, what that is. A walking contradiction is a dentist who doesn't brush their teeth or floss, right? If that's you, then you're in a walking contradiction. A walking contradiction is a banker that doesn't save money themselves. Uh, a walking contradiction is a librarian who doesn't read. Um, a walking contradiction is your overweight gym teacher, right? A, lo- a walking contradiction is a prophet who doesn't listen to God. Or, or maybe, maybe we could point at ourselves here for just a moment. A walking contradiction is a saved sinner who doesn't want God to save sinners. Is that how you see the world? Could you be a walking spiritual contradiction this morning? You being a saved sinner who doesn't want God to, to save sinners. That's the question of Jonah chapter 4. It's, it's, really, it's really asking us, how do, how do we respond to God's compassion? It's a key question here. What do we do with God's compassion? When he shows mercy and grace, because that's who he is, when he shows kindness in the world, what do we do with that? How do we respond to God? We're in the final chapter of Jonah's story here. And this, I'll just be real clear with you. It's kind of a down day. We've got snow going on here in the middle of March. We lost an hour of sleep last night. I mean, we just need to have a prophet who doesn't listen to God and is really a dope, okay? Because that, And that's what we get this morning. Chapter 4 of Jonah, here's where the story ends. And, and many of us, we don't even know chapter 4 because we end it at chapter 3, right? Chapters one, let me just summarize Jonah for you, the story again, just to refresh our memories on it. Okay, so chapter 1, God comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, I'm sending you to the city of Nineveh. Uh, you have a message to proclaim against the city. And Jonah's like, no, I'm not doing that, God. I hate the Ninevites. In fact, I'm going to take a boat to the other side of the earth. He runs down to Joppa, gets on a ship, flees to the exact opposite direction of the city of Nineveh, thinking he can escape from God, the God who is everywhere, the God you can't escape from. And sure enough, God doesn't let him escape. He sends the storm. The boat rocks up and down. The sailors rock up and down. They're trying to get out of it. They try to figure it out. Finally, Jonah's like, hey, it's my fault. Throw me overboard. And the sailor's like, okay. And so they pitch him overboard into the sea, right? And you think, oh, for a moment, that's the end of the story. Jonah drowns. What a pitiful prophet, the end. But no, God is still involved in this game. He is going to get his purposes accomplished. And so the scripture says, God appointed a big fish. By the way, this is just a side uh, note for me, a little, little commentary from Jeremy on this. I think the fish was a whale, so you can debate me long and hard about that. It was a whale. Wally swims up, swallows Jonah whole, eats him up, and there's Jonah in the belly of the whale for three days and for three nights. Jonah is so defiant against God, he doesn't speak for those three days or three nights. He's just mad. Like, this dude is in perpetual states of anger. And so he's just there, but finally he kind of has it like, maybe if I say some good things to God, like, I'll get out of this, or like, I guess I'm just going to die here in this fish, so okay. So he prays, and he, he acknowledges that salvation only comes from God. Like that's, It finally clicks with him. Salvation is from the Lord. And so God's like, okay, great. 
God appoints, he tells the fish, hey, barf that dude up on the sea. And sure enough, the fish swims up, vomits Jonah out on the ocean. And then we get to chapter three, okay, take two. God comes again to Jonah and says, hey, Jonah, here's the deal. Go to Nineveh, that great city, the city that's important to me, preach against it. This time, we hold our breath for just a second. What's Jonah gonna do? He goes, okay. And so he goes to Nineveh and he preaches. And he preaches and says, yeah, 40 days. Nineveh will be no more. I think that's probably all the enthusiasm he could muster up to say that sermon anyway. 40 days, Nineveh will be no more. And he walks through the city, proclaims the message. And the most incredible thing happens. The city, the entire city repents. From the king down to the lowest person, like everybody repents. They, they proclaim a fast. They demonstrate their repentance through sackcloth and ash. They turn away from their evil ways and they repent. And it's amazing. Let me just tell you, as a preacher, if, if I had the opportunity to preach to an entire city, and many scholars think that the city of Nineveh at this point is probably 300,000 in population. I'll explain that in just a moment. But 300,000 people, and if they all repent, like that would be my trophy day. That would be, I would retire after that message and be like, I'm done. I've, you know, mic drop. That was the best sermon I could ever give. The whole city repented. We're out, you know? That, that's where we think the book of Jonah ends. Like God says, okay, great. The city repents. I re- I'm going to relent from the disaster. Chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned away from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. End of story, happy ending, off we go, right? But no, there's a fourth chapter. There's, there's a fourth chapter in my Bible. I hope it's there in yours as well. The story's not done. God is still at work with Jonah. And when you think, okay, how does Jonah respond to what God did and to the repentance of the Ninevites, you would think this prophet would be excited about that as well. He would be so glad, like people actually listened to what I said, and they followed through with what I said. So praise God, that's amazing. But we get this note in chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. (laughs) He's a bad preacher, okay? He goes, he speaks the word of God, the people do what he calls them to do, and he's mad about it. He's angry, Friends, if you obey and, and like if you listen to what I say because it comes from God's word and you go out and do it, I'm going to be happy. Like that, I should be happy that you go and do that. But Jonah here, he's mad. He's upset. He's angry. And not just angry. In the Hebrew text, it's, it's not translated well here, but in the Hebrew it says, but, but what Jonah saw there, he had this, this frame of mind. Jonah saw it was exceedingly evil. From, from Jonah's vantage point, from his perspective on what God has done in his mercy and kindness, Jonah counts God's actions as evil. Like, time out, God. You are wrong on this. You, it's, this, is, this is horrible. You are unjust. You're, you're bad. This is a mistake. God, you've done evil here. And he's angry at God. He counts the grace of God, the compassion of God, the mercy of God as evil, wrong. It's no good. It made him angry. Eugene Peterson, he made a good point about anger. He said, anger is, the most use, is most useful as a diagnostic tool. When anger erupts in us, it is a signal that something is wrong. Something isn't right. There's, an, there's evil or incompetence or stupidity lurking about. When we are angry, we know we are on to something that matters, that really counts. And when we track the anger carefully, we find that it often leads to a wrong within us. So, maybe to say it another way is, we need to interrogate our anger. Why are we angry? Why is Jonah angry? 
He's displeased. He counts it evil. Jonah does, at least in the beginning of verse 2, the right thing in regard to his anger. It says he prays. He prayed to the Lord. And that, my friends, is a good... If you're angry, if if you're frustrated by your circumstances, by the situations in the world, by the environment around you, by the things that are happening... To take your anger to God, that's, that's good. Okay, so let me just commend Jonah for a heartbeat here and say, yes, go to God with your anger. Go to him with your frustration. That is the right place, the right direction to deal with that and to, to, to address it. And so he takes his anger to God. And this is what he says. This is his prayer. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said? Is, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Like, God, when I was safe at home in Jerusalem, back in Judea, like I was enjoying the safety and security of Israel, isn't this exactly what I said would happen when you told me to go the first time? I don't like this. This is not good. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Now we get Jonah's motives. Here's why I ran. Because I knew if you sent me, and if I had to proclaim this message to Nineveh, to my enemies, to these Assyrian pagans, like, I knew this would happen. They'd, you'd be merciful to them. He says, I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I mean, Jonah's got it tight here. His theology is on point. He says, God, I know, I know what kind of God you are. I know who you are. I've read the Bible. And there it is in Exodus 34. You are a God. He quotes it directly. Gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. God, that's the stuff you love to do. And I knew that back in my country. And that's why I told you, I'm not going. I'm going to Tarshish. I'm getting out of here because this is exactly what you'd do. He's so frustrated and mad about it. Why is it such a threat in Jonah's mind that God would be gracious? Jonah here has something else going on in his heart. If God is gracious to Nineveh, God is being merciful and kind and forgiving to Israel's sworn enemies. God is being merciful and gracious to the very people that Jonah hates. Jonah has, if I I could just put it this way, it's a not-so-subtle nationalism going on here. Israel is great and superior to everybody else, and Nineveh, the Assyrians, those pagans, those sinners... God should smite them all. We're better. Frankly, it's racism. Jonah's nationalism, his racism, are more important to him than God's own nature. And Jonah says, I knew this about you, God. Again, Jonah had great doctrinal information. He had excellent theology, but that's not good enough. Friends, you can have good theology. You can quote Bible verses. Satan is pretty good at that too. You can know doctrine. The demons know doctrine as well. You can know the Bible. Jonah knows his scriptures. He knows his Bible. The problem is he won't be shaped by God's word. He won't be transformed by the truth of God's word and who God is. He knows this about God. Some people have this view that the Old Testament God is like this angry, just fly off the handle, wrathful, vengeful God. That's so false. It's such a bad caricature of the God of the scriptures. 
God himself says, I am a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disasters. Jonah knows this. He's seen it in his own life. I mean, wasn't God gracious to Jonah? He pursued him in love. He saved him from drowning by a great fish. He gave him a second chance and called him to go again with the message of God's grace. Jonah knows intrinsically who God is. I, get, I bet you do too as well. And he said, I'm mad at you, God. You're evil. Because this is what would happen. He knows who God is, but he won't be shaped by God. So he says in verse 3, Therefore now, God... So here's his proclamation. This is more of a speech against God than it is a prayer, but... Here it is. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I mean, capture just what he says there. God, it's better for me to die because you've been merciful to these Ninevites than to stick around on this planet and see you be kind to my enemies. I'd rather be in the ground than see you be merciful to sinners. Essence, what he's there. This is an extreme from Jonah. This is, this is the reality of the book of Jonah in its entirety. It's an extreme book, right? Extremely running away as fast as he can, extreme storms, extreme big fish, extreme vomit, extreme repentance. And here's this extreme, again, defiance and hard heartedness of Jonah. Extreme anger. In all the extremities and extremeness of this book, though, it's helpful for us to see. It just It's a mirror for us to look in and say, okay, I'm not that guy, but whoa, wait, maybe I, maybe I lean towards him. Maybe that kind of action and anger shows up in my own heart. I'd rather die than see my neighbors saved, is what Jonah says, to paraphrase. He'd rather go to the grave than change his attitude towards God. Now, the Lord here, again, in full, in full complicity with his nature, does something like if I was the Lord in this case, I would have enough with Jonah. I'd be like, fine, Jonah, torture, you know, just boom, you're gone, done, and you know, he'd off this table. But the Lord is pursuing Jonah once again, and he does this in such a gentle and gracious way. He asks him a question, doesn't accuse, doesn't throw down fire, doesn't drop the hammer, he just like a like a gentle father just getting close to a kid who's just having a tantrum, temper tantrum, just sits down next to him, quiet voice. Do, do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Like, is this, is this good? Is this good? Do you do well to be angry? I just love how compassionate God is here. He keeps showing his heart and mercy. And God's not just asking Jonah this question. He's asking you and me this morning. He's asking us the question, is it good that, that we are angry? If God was gracious, let me put it this way, if God was gracious and kind to the persons, or maybe just a few people in your mind, that you loathe the most, would you be angry? I mean, just who are the people in your mind? I, I know they're there, okay? So let's not, let's just kind of, do away with the, the facade here for just a moment. There are people, maybe whole classes of people, maybe skin colors, maybe language-speaking groups of people, maybe ethnicities. There are whole groups of people out there that we think of and we go, if, 
if God were to strike them dead, or if God were to remove blank, I'd be okay with that. If they weren't on the picture anymore, if there were no more and you fill in the blank, I could list them out, but I'll let you, I'll let the Spirit just kind of drop that name in your head. If there were no more fill in the blank, I'd be okay. How would you respond if God did something powerful in their lives, was merciful and gracious to them? Would you be angry? I'm willing to bet we would. What? God was kind to them? No, God, you should torch them. I think many of us have a sons of thunder theology. We like the sons of thunder theology. Yes, might makes right. The sons of thunder theology comes from Jesus' disciples who had Jonah issues just as well. Jesus in Luke chapter 9 sets his face to go to Jerusalem. He's going to go to the cross, lay down his life. And he's up in the north in Galilee. And to get down to Jerusalem, he's got to go south, right? And so many of us, if we were going south today, we'd hit 75 and just book it down to Georgia and then to Florida. The Jews in that day, they, again, they had a, a race issue. They had another pro, a problem with another class of people, another ethnicity. I mean, racism and just nationalism just spews all over the Bible. There it is. They, there's this group of people in the middle there called the Samaritans. The Jews hated them. The Jews hated them so much that instead of taking Interstate 75 from Galilee straight down to Jerusalem, they would go as far out as they could. I mean, they would make a loop through Washington, D.C., all the way back down around to get into Jerusalem. Out as far as they could, not the straight line. Jesus is so completely different. He's like, guys, we're going to Jerusalem, and we're going the straight route, straight on through Samaria. So they're headed through Samaria, and this is the way Luke accounts for it. He says, Jesus sent messengers ahead of him. So he's like, hey, you two, go into town. Go into town, tell them I'm coming, and we need lodging. There's a group of us here. We need some places to stay. We need some meals. So like, see if the shawarma restaurant's open. Like, let's, get, uh, let's get the best Samaritan fare. We're going to get ready. He sends them in to make preparations for him. But Luke says, the people did not receive him because his face was set to Jerusalem. They boarded up the town. They hear Jesus is coming and they're like, nope, no welcome here. They shut up the town. It's rude. It's frankly, it's rude. Yes. And this is what happens. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, two, one, I'm impressed that these guys think that they can actually do that. I mean, that's pretty bold on their part. Just say, hey. We call down fire all the time, God. You want us to torch these people too? Like, we can do that. It's not happening. But notice Jesus' response to them. Jesus rebukes them. This is the sons of thunder theology. God, there's people that we don't like. And we don't like them because they don't like you. So let's just burn them up. Let's just nuke them off the planet. That's a better thing. Jesus rebukes them. Maybe rebuking us this morning. How many of us have that view towards people who aren't like us, who espouse different values? They vote for a, a different political party. They have different skin color. They speak different languages. They wear different clothing. How often or how much do we hope that, like, the world would be a better place if they just didn't exist. Take them off the map, God. And we say, if they aren't for us, they're against us. So let's just, let's just eradicate them all. 
And I think, and here's where I think our hearts are revealed. If God did that, if he just nuked them off, we would probably cheer. That's the tell to me. We'd be pretty happy with it. Yeah, they're finally gone. But how would we respond if God stayed his hand and showed mercy and brought spiritual revival and renewal and brought life to those people? Would we be angry? Tim Keller in his book on Jonah writes, if love for country's interests lead you to root for an entire class of people to be spiritually lost, then you love your nation more than God. That is idolatry by any definition. Friends, is your nationalism an idol? Do you have a view of God that only allows him to be gracious and compassionate to the people you prefer? I mean, we're all for asking God to be patient with us. We're all okay with him like being merciful to us and forgiving our sins and slow to anger with you and me. But when he does that for other people, especially the people we don't like, we may get furious. We've got to interrogate our anger. Maybe you think of yourself as being more merciful and compassionate than God. Like I think Jonah did. He thinks he's better than God. And so when God does something he doesn't like, he's like, that was evil. That was wrong. Again, can we track our anger carefully? We're not as compassionate as God is, and we think that there's a problem with God. We need to interrogate our anger. Now, unless you think I'm making a straw man argument here, I've seen this kind of anger expressed among us. Even in this room, I've heard it. And I'll ask the question that God asks. Do you do well to be angry? Is it good and right to be angry? Are you angry with God's compassion? Let me just pause there and let you hear from the Spirit on that question. Are you angry with God's compassion? what happens? Here's, here's Jonah just angry with God. What happens? Jonah moves out of the city. He gets out of Nineveh, verse 5. Jonah went out of the city. He, I mean, just I, I imagine the city is just rocking with great gratitude and thankfulness to God. Like There's just a lifted spirit here, and Jonah can't even stand being among them. He's just so frustrated. So he leaves the city. He goes to the east, he sits on the east of the city, and he makes a booth for himself there. I think in the back of mind, his mind, he's like, okay, <laughs> God's really going to torch him, right? Like, he's just, yeah, I, he's just fooling with me. Little joke, huh? Right, God? And so he goes to sit on the side of the city on the east, and he's like, maybe the fire will fall. Maybe God will go, oh, what? Jonah, I, you're so right. You're so smart, Jonah. Like, <laughs> of course these people are like terrible people. I'm sorry, I should have listened to you to begin with and just drops the fire. But he doesn't. Jonah goes, sits out on the city, waits. He sat under it. He makes a little booth for himself, a little lean-to, gets some shade. He sits under it till he should see what would become of the city. Now, God gets really involved in this story. I, Jonah, or God is not hands-off on this at all. In fact, now three times God's going to do something. He's going to appoint things to happen. One of the realities of the story of Jonah is that God is hands-on 
when it comes to nature in this world. He is sovereign over all things. So he appoints storms. He appoints fish. Now God's got some other appointments to make. Verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant. He, he decreed a plant spring up. And, it, and he made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. God brings this, he makes this plant grow up over Jonah, give him shade. And Jonah's like, oh, that's great. He is celebrating the plant. There's a ton of irony here happening in this. I just want to point this out. In chapter 3, verse 10, it says, when God saw their repentance, God relented of the disaster. That word disaster is important. God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. In 3.10, God saves Nineveh from that disaster, and Jonah is displeased. But now here in 4.6, God saves Jonah from his discomfort. God causes his plant to grow up to save him from his discomfort. And the Hebrew word for disaster and discomfort are the same thing. God saves Jonah from his discomfort, and Jonah is really happy. He relents of disaster, Jonah's mad. Saves him from discomfort, he's really happy. Like Jonah is really self-focused, right? He is just so selfish. Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. It's like throwing a little party for the plant, dancing around the plant. He's loving it. God's not done appointing though. Verse 7, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed, he's got another creature in nature coming out to deal with Jonah. He appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Again, the language here is just, it's actionable. Like imagine just this little caterpillar bug thing. Just He sees that plant and he's like, God has provided for me. Feast of all feasts, plants of all plants, buffet of all buffets, all you can eat, caterpillar on plant, knocking that dude out. He was a fat, happy little critter after that meal, and he is excited. God's provision there. Great, but Jonah, <laughs> Jonah is not that happy. Verse eight, when the sun rose, God appointed, so there again, God's hands on, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. The shade's gone, the, the heat is there in the middle of the day, the east wind's just blowing the heat and Jonah throws a temper tantrum that would make a kindergarten temper tantrum look like a laughter. He is just, he is so angry. He asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Oh, poor Jonah, getting a little sunburn. Like, that's what's going on here. And by the way, all my sarcasm is here because that's the text sarcasm. Like, there, we're done with Jonah. What a doofus. And again, God shows up to talk to Jonah. Do you will do well to be angry to the plant? <laughs> like, Jonah, come on, man. This little plant, are you, is it good for you to be angry about this thing? You have some creature comforts taken away. You have a little discomfort in life, a little, little lack of some of the good stuff there, and, and do you do well to be angry about it? Jonah's like, yes, absolutely I do well, do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. What? He's angry about a plant and thinks he's justified to be angry about it, even to his death. Do we get where God is tracking Jonah's anger and where it leads? Who does Jonah worship in this moment? Himself. He's, he's worshiping the plant first and foremost, but his idolatrous heart shows that he's really worshiping, he's really worshiping his own comfort and his own security. God, God takes away the things that are comfortable to Jonah just for a moment, the security that he has, and Jonah flips out. He's more concerned about that. And Jonah just, or God just brings us all to bear 
verses 10 and 11. Here's how this entire book ends, and we've, we've got to let the book end the way it does because it's powerful here. The Lord said to Jonah, so now he does speak directly. No more questions. One more question. But he has a statement first to Jonah. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. God's like, okay, Jonah, I see your heart. The word pity there is to be moved with compassion. It's to be troubled by. Your heart is leaning in towards that plant. You didn't labor for it. You didn't water it. You didn't make it grow. It was here for 24 hours and gone. And that's where your heart moves to because it serves and satisfies your comfort and your security. And then God says, look at me, Jonah. Look at me. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? God says, Jonah, you, you pity this little plant, but by your own words, I am a God who's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. So Shouldn't my heart be troubled and moved towards and compassionate towards this great city of Nineveh? 120,000 persons here. And just think about this. Who doesn't know their right hand from their left hand? Think about that. It's kids, right? Little children. They don't know their right hand from their left hand. Here's a city, again, scholars point out that Nineveh at this point was probably 300,000. And God's identifying there's kids here. Little children, this great city, bustling. And God says to Jonah, shouldn't my heart be moved towards them? The life that's there? Should I not have more concern for well-being with image bearers of mine, with life? Can God not be merciful and compassionate to people who, I mean, these people, this is a pagan city. These are people that have acted cruelly. They're, they're wicked and evil. They're violent. And God looks at them and says, they don't have the scriptures like the Jews do. They don't have a covenant relationship with him like Israel does. They're like little children spiritually. Isn't it okay if I'm merciful to them? Jonah, shouldn't you be merciful to these people more than furiously angry? This is a profoundly staggering perspective. The question is, are you more angry with spiritually darkened, immature, unregenerate people, then you are compassionate. We impose a Christian morality on the world when we should be deploying a Christian compassion to the world. We expect sinners to act and behave in the way that only regenerate believers should act and behave. And we get angry at them when they don't do what we would do or do what we want. And friends, anger is never compatible with compassion. We'd rather call down fire than be broken and compassionate, compassionate over their lostness. You cannot be compassionate to someone you're rooting against. Even more concerning, we can't expect the world to respond to God's mercy if they don't see God's mercy expressed through his people. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. But if we as Christians act like Jonah towards the Ninevites of the world, they won't repent because they don't see God's kindness in us. I think we're more broken over our lost comforts than we are over the plight and needs of the lost in this world. 
We get more frustrated over mass than we do about people that are far from Jesus. So let me ask you, what do you care more about in this world? Your creature comforts? Or do you care the way that Jesus cares? Mark Dever asked the question this way. Have you considered that your lack of concern for hundreds of thousands, even hundreds of millions of people made in God's image is a matter of great grief to God? The text here asks us the question. God ends this book with this question. Should I not be compassionate and merciful to this great city? Should God not be compassionate to others? Are we all for, yeah, God be compassionate to me, but nobody else, unless I choose, unless I want them, you to be compassionate to them. It's a question God asks us as we consider the world and unbelievers around us. You see, friends, God does have a heart for the lost. He has a heart for all nations. His, his design, his purposes are that his glory would be seen and believed, that he would be worshipped by every tongue and people and nation all over the world, all ethnicities. His global purposes, which cannot be thwarted, are that there would be some from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And he's shown that his purposes will be accomplished by showing pity on the human race and sending his son Jesus for us. Jesus is the greater and better Jonah who came willingly, not just to tell us to repent, not just to tell us about the wrath of God, but to come and stand in our place and receive the wrath of God on himself for us. He came on our behalf because we wouldn't repent. Jesus is the greater and better Jonah who is the embodiment of God's compassion and mercy towards wayward, rebellious sinners. Jesus, unlike Jonah, humbled himself for his enemies. And that's that's the reality of this book, that God's compassion, the Lord's compassion, exceeds our logic. If we let our brains, in the way we naturally human think, those who are for us, we're for, and those who are against us, we're against. God's compassion, it short-circuits our brain. It exceeds our logic. But if we see God's compassion for all people, for the nations, for those far from God, we can, we can follow Jesus in that. So we follow Jesus by humbling ourselves for everyone, by showing acts of compassion and mercy and charity and generosity towards even our enemies. We follow Jesus by going to the Ninevehs of our world today, the places where we only see enemies and hatred, and we show them God's love. We follow Jesus by laying down our nationalism and our America first mentality and take up a kingdom of God mentality and a Jesus first mentality on the world. The story of Jonah encourages us to show mercy and kindness to the lost and to our enemies Because Jesus has done that towards us. Having been shown grace, how can we not share grace and show grace? Having been shown mercy, how can we not show mercy? So let me wrap up with this. What's our expression of obedience here? What does the book of Jonah call us to? I think it calls us in one practical way to care all the more about evangelism and global world missions. Do we want to see God save sinners? I mean, yeah, I know, I know generically we go, yes, world missions, but do we really care about that? God has appointed his people, the church, to go and make disciples of all nations. And if we are his people, then that 
is on us to go and to be those people to make disciples. We are the means by which God works in the world to bring the message of salvation and the hope of the gospel to the world. So the work of going to the world in word and deed to share the mercy and compassion of Jesus is the church's work. And, and there's a couple ways we can do that. First of all, we need to learn about the peoples of the world that need the gospel. We need to learn about our Ninevehs around us. Not just, not just in the far places of the world, but in our neighborhoods. Who are the people who are far from God? Who are the people who need the compassion and mercy of Jesus? It's everybody, by the way, but do you know them? Do you know about your Nineveh that you live in? Do you know about the Ninevehs around the world? A couple resources. One is the Joshua Project. You can go online, search for the Joshua Project. It's a website and resource that's devoted to unreached people groups all over the world to help you understand and discern more about what's happening in those places and how you can pray for them. Some of them are not as closed as you might think they are. They're relatively open and easy for us as Americans to get into. Joshua Project. The other one's Operation World. It's a global prayer guide to pray for the nations, to know their cultures, to know what they need, to know where God is at work and to know where we need to send people so that God is at work. Learn about your Nineveh. Secondly, support the missionaries. I have in my notes support the Jonas, but Jonah's a bad dude. He's just a, he's a lousy prophet. But we need to support those who are sent by God with the gospel around the world, those who are called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Woodside has several missions partners. We have missionaries that we support. I want to encourage you to pray for them, support them financially, support them in your prayer. We're sending a team of 10 from our campus in two weeks about a week and a half actually now, to Rome to serve with Amos and Ashley Miguel, our Rome missionary partners there. I want to ask you to pray for our team as we get ready to go, but support those that are being sent. And thirdly, go yourself. Go to the Ninevehs of this world yourself. Whether that's short-term missions, perhaps God is calling some of you to go with your life and your career overseas to just pluck you up, plant you in a Nineveh, and say, here you are, serve, be faithful, carry the gospel out. You may already be in your Nineveh, which just happens to be your neighborhood, and you just need to get to know the people around you, invite them into your home, love on them. The need is great. Friends, are you a spiritual walking contradiction? That's the question here of this text. Are you a saved sinner who doesn't want God to save sinners? Let's interrogate our anger. Let's see God's compassion. And let's follow and display his compassion in the world to all people. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.